uh, when I was putting together the title slide, which you'll see behind me right now, I, I wanted to uh, go on the word perseverance. Uh, and specifically, we're going to look at a parable of that word perseverance toward the end of our time this morning. But the word perseverance is one that, for whatever reason, you, you have those words that you just always misspell. And you're like, you're not a dummy, but like there's words that you come across and say, I don't know how to spell that word. And every time I, I miss that part, perseverance is that word for me. And so I messed it up. And then Connie Wilson, my secretary, said, hey, did you mean to misspell perseverance? Were you trying to do some sort of a cool play on the word or something? I said, no, I'm just a dummy. Please fix that which made me spiral and realize I have to learn how to spell this word. And so I'm, I'm a big analytical guy, so I went to Google and I looked at the etymology of the word perseverance, trying to do something, I'm not making this up, trying to do something to trigger something that says I'm going to remember why this word is spelled this way. So here you go. It's from Latin, two words put together, per and severus. If, you ever, if you're a Harry Potter fan, Severus Snape is one of the characters. He's very serious and strict. That's what that word means. Severus means strict. It means very serious. Per means very. And so perseverance means very strict. Now, when we talk about the word perseverance, you think of the definition, you're like, that's kind of weird. Well, not really, because when we think about the word perseverance, you may think of a very strict adherence to a diet or to health or to exercise plan that requires very strict perseverance, right? So that's where we get that word from. Meaning, though many thoughts and feelings and obstacles may come in your path, perseverance means staying the course. But it's hard, right? It means you've got to be strict. You've got to be staying on it because there are many things that will cause you to move this way and this way. Guys, that word perseverance, I'm not understating this, that is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. The word perseverance is the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews, which we've been walking through for a number of weeks. This is written to Christians whose friends and relatives and co-workers, you name it, would have mocked their new way of life. Thoughts and feelings and obstacles drawing them away from the chosen difficulty of following Jesus, compared to, by the way, the peace of returning to the simple welcome life of Judaism. And so when the obstacles came, the question then for this audience is, Will they persevere? What about you? When the obstacles come, when the world is tugging, go this way, go this way. Will you persevere? And so that is the message that is at the heart of this passage. So let's look at it together, and I think that we're going to see some neat things. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And don't freak out as we go through some of these things, because we're going to walk through it and uh, hopefully gain some, some neat insight here. It says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from god but if it has if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned 
This passage is the continuation of what we looked at last week. And by the way, if you were here last week and you're here again this week, wow, because that was something, right? Grow up. Stop being a baby. And you're here. So I guess I didn't scare you off. That's good. Last week we saw just that, right? That the author of Hebrews was calling this audience to wake up, to grow up. And so last week ended, and so the author doesn't believe, and we saw this last week, that the author doesn't believe that there is a permanent state of spiritual infancy that believers can occupy. And here's the thing, and again, we looked at this last week, but what worries the author isn't that these Christians aren't smart. It's that their laziness will lead to their drift to leaving the church and ultimately leaving God. This is a big matter, okay? This is a huge thing. And so as we're looking at our passage today, we're going to look at a couple of things that you'll see on the screen behind me. And it's really, we're all talking about pursuing perseverance, this, this thing that we're seeking after, sticking with it, a strict adherence despite the obstacles. And the first thing as we're pursuing perseverance is this, that leaving doesn't mean forgetting. Leaving doesn't mean forgetting. And you're going to see this in the very first verse here and, and in the second verse too. But he's going to talk about this word, you got to leave certain things. But that doesn't mean that that means to forget them. In the first verse, he starts and says, therefore. So again, that's in light of what we looked at last week. Grow up, mature, stop drinking milk, eat solid food. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So therefore, growing up, you need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, he goes on and talks about what that is in the second part of verse 1 and then also verse 2. It says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. And you're going to see the sort of, we can number them here. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings. That's the second thing. Laying on of hands. That's the third thing. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's, I think, four and five. And so he sort of unpacks what these elementary, these foundational things are. Now, look, we're not going to dwell long here because there's a whole lot we need to discuss in the second half of our passage today. But real quickly, I think this is why, again, it's not, everything in this is not real clear, but we're going to do the best that we can. So he talks about repentance from dead works to faith. And you're thinking, hmm, that's elementary. Why would we want to leave that? But again, to leave doesn't mean to forget. Now he says, repentance from dead works to faith. And the reason he says this is, again, you got to remember the audience. This is Jewish, these are Jewish people that are really obsessed with the law, really obsessed with living a, a legal lifestyle and looking at the law of Moses and striving after it and a works-based righteousness. They're obsessed with this. And so what the author says is, leave behind the works. Instead, look forward to faith. That's what Jesus, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, repent and believe in the gospel. We don't find our righteousness through works, do we? Who do we find our righteousness in? Jesus. Jesus is the means through which anyone may be saved, and it's not a matter of works. And I think this is why he says, turn from that lifestyle and look after Jesus. He then talks about washings. The word for washings is a plural form of the word for baptisms. So maybe he's talking about the difference between Jewish rites of purification where they had to clean their dishes a certain way and wash their hands a certain way and wash their clothes a certain way and do all these things to make themselves ceremonially clean. Whereas the author of Hebrews says, leave that behind. You need to focus on the elementary principle, the fact that you're made clean, not by what you can scrub together, but by the fact that Jesus has made you clean, right? So this is a very elementary foundational thing. You have a new baptism is what he, I think, is saying. 
The next one he talks about is laying on of hands. And honestly, there are so many practical uses of this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament community of God's people that I'm really not sure what he means. There's a whole lot of things that he could mean. And again, instead of hunkering down here and staying here for a long time, we can simply say, we can see that these first few things are focusing on the beginning stages of the believer. What he's saying is, these things are beginning stages of the believer. And then he goes to the next thing. He says, also the resurrection and the eternal judgment. In other words, his way of saying another elementary thing, a very simple thing you have to understand, <laughs> is that the faithful will one day be rescued and the wicked will one day perish. Is there anything more foundational for the fact that our whole existence, how can we have hope in this life because of the next life, man? That's elementary, right? And so he says, you got to have that foundation, but also you need to leave it. He says, we must leave these things, but it doesn't mean that we must forget these things. I'm going to guess that I think everybody, okay, so it's been a while since you've learned addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, right? I hope so. If you're still there, then hey, more power to you. You'll get it, okay? Uh, But hopefully, and I think probably it's been a while since you were learning those things. You left the elementary behind. But it is literally impossible for you to live the life that you live and have forgotten that elementary. It's not, impo- it's not possible for you to live and not know addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. To, have, to, to keep your bank account afloat, you have to understand addition and subtraction, right? You don't have to even think to yourself, now what did Miss, Miss Deer, that was my con- kindergarten teacher, what did Miss Deer teach me? Yeah, actually, that was her name. Her skin was so dark it was like leather. Like she just lived in the sun. But her name was Miss Deer. She taught me arithmetic, basics. Now I don't have to go think, now as I'm looking at my checking account, add here, subtract here. No, no, it's elementary. I don't even have to think about that, right? And it goes beyond that. When you think about how many hours you need or will get or won't get, you're doing addition and subtraction. When you're thinking about, okay, this is how much I get paid per hour. This is how much the customer has, has hourly demanded. What, what should I charge them? That's all mathematics. When you're grocery shopping, you're comparing price versus quantity and division, all of that. You're looking for the best deal. That's math. And you don't have to think to yourself, better consult my first grade textbook so that I can know how to do math again. Why? Because you never left it even though you left it. Does that make sense? It's so elementary that it never left it because everything you've built on since then starts with the foundational. Do you have to go back and consult your times tables every day? Ever? No. Do you still count on your fingers? I sure hope not. Because you've moved on. You've left those things. But though you've left the elementary, you could not function your life without it. You haven't forgotten it. And listen, the same is true of elementary doctrine of the faith. The elementary should be like breathing. It's involuntary and life-sustaining. You can't live as a believer in this world. You can't go in sin and not come to the realization that thank God, even involuntarily, thank God that I am not struck dead right this moment because of what I deserve, because of what I sin. You may not think that in the moment, but functionally speaking, you're thinking, Thank God that he loves me. Thank God for his grace. Because that is the elementary. And it's beautiful, is it not? That's our foundation. Praise God for that. That's our foundation. But also, maturity should be our pursuit. We should pursue understanding the attributes of God. We should pursue understanding the gifts of the Spirit. To understand how, God, have you equipped me to serve in the church We should seek maturity in having a fervent prayer life. We should seek maturity in seeking accountability in a small group that wants to hold you to that maturity. And you may be thinking, to be honest, Pastor, I'm just not where I want to be. 
And I think that in a way, all of us are like that. I'm just not really where I want to be, and it's hard to get the motivation to get there. There's a very significant caveat in verse 3 that I don't want to overlook. And this we will do, the maturity. This we will do if God permits. Listen, human beings are responsible for their spiritual growth, but such growth ultimately comes from God himself. In other words, if God ain't in it, it ain't going to happen. If God is not in it, it is not going to happen. And this is key. Spiritual maturity is not first, hear this, we just sang a song about this, is not first an external pursuit, but an internal pursuit. Maturity comes from the inside out. Not independently striving, but dependently relying, right? That's the journey of maturity. Not independently striving and trying hard, or I can do this. You can't. If God ain't in it, it ain't going to happen. We are dependently relying. You want to bear the fruit of maturity? Get yourself as near to the one who can make it happen as possible. The commitment to leave the elementary is a commitment to build upon your foundation, not forsake it. Again, we're, not, we're leaving it, but we're not forgetting these essential foundational things. Now, this is where things really get interesting, and I wanted to leave most of our time for this part of the passage. In the most vivid way that the author can, he seeks to, and I mean this, he seeks to turn the stomachs of his readers at the thought of not pursuing this sort of maturity. And so things get really severe in the way that he explains this, and he does so in the issue of a warning. And so, again, if you're taking notes, the second thing is what we see is that a warning looks forward, not backward. It's really important that a warning, this is going to help our understanding of the passage, a warning looks forward, not backward. This week, uh, I was on my phone and swiping and mindlessly looking at things, you know, as sometimes we do. But I saw a clip of uh, Steve Irwin. Raise your hand if you remember who Steve Irwin is. You guys remember? Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's a bigger number than I thought. The Crocodile Hunter. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I do. I mean, I know my real name. But how would you like to be known by the Crocodile Hunter, right? Steve Irwin passed away not too long ago, although it probably is farther back than I think to myself. But Steve Irwin, if you don't know who he is, he had a show on TV. He would do countless interviews, talk shows, public events, and many more things. He wanted so badly, he's the crocodile hunter, right? He wanted so badly to take these big and scary animals, and because he loved them and he knew them better than we know them, he wanted to present them to the public eye in such a way that it would dispel the stigma of that thing being big and scary. And so, you know what I'm talking about? You saw pictures and videos of him petting a crocodile or kissing it on the nose or cuddling with a snake. And you're like, yeah, that guy was psycho, right? But he wanted to do this thing of saying, you don't understand. This is not really big and scary. This is, this is simple, and it's not something you should be afraid of. I say that because these next three verses carry with them a stigma of being big and scary. They carry a stigma of being the big, scary verses. This is a passage often used to teach that you can lose your salvation, fall once again into eternal condemnation. And I want to do this. I want to take the big and scary and present it to you in such a way that while every doctrinal detail isn't entirely clear, the purpose, I'm going to argue, is extremely clear. And it's not to lead the reader to inner doubts but to renewed perseverance. I'm going to say that again. The purpose is not for us to say, oh, but did I? Oh, but what if? And what about that person? 
The goal is not to cause doubt or fear. It is to instill perseverance and endurance in the heart of the recipient, these guys and for us. And so with that in mind, let's tackle the big and scary. Verses 4 through 6 say this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, kind of number these two. There's number one, who have once been enlightened. Number two, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Number four, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So for those guys, he says, for it is impossible for them and then have fallen away, verse six, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, that really is a mouthful. And we're not going to turn over everything. And I'm not going to sit here and say, by the end of our time today, you're going to perfectly understand this thing. Because I don't. Okay? But I do think that as we walk through it, we can gain some perspective. on. We not solve every doctrinal idea that we have in our heads. We will see the purpose, the intent of the author. Now, he says simply, and you can kind of take the first part of verse 4 and the first part of verse 6 and sort of staple them together. And what he's saying is that it's impossible to restore to repentance a certain type of individual. That's what he's saying. It's impossible to restore to repentance a certain type of individual. So the question then is this, who's this directed at? Right? Who? What, what type of individual is it impossible to restore again to repentance? Now, who is the case Go ahead and throw that slide up there behind me. The, the problem is basically we have to decide one of three groups of people. He's either talking about, number one, Christians. And listen, you may not want to write all that down because it's long, but just I'm going to use it up there so you can see what I'm explaining, okay? Number one, he's either talking about Christians who can lose their salvation, which we'll talk about that. Or he's talking about Christians needing a hypothetical, hypothetical uh, kick in the pants, as we'll talk about, right? Or he's talking about sort of almost Christians that are sort of near to the Christian community who have been in church but will leave never to return. So either Christians that can lose their salvation, never to regain it, Christians who are given a hypothetical that cannot happen, but one that is designed to sort of kick them in the pants. Or, thirdly, almost Christians who have been around the church and the things of God that can drift and fall away in such a way so as to never return. Well, I'll say this, and we're going to quickly look at these. Number one is out. Number one is out. And I'm going to explain why number one is out. And you can fade that one, okay? So we're just going to eliminate that, right? Okay, number one is out of the picture. The passage isn't entirely clear on this, but when you consider what God has told us elsewhere, it's extremely clear. Again, God is the author of the Bible, and certainly he used many human authors. But when you see something that's maybe a little unclear, you can look around the Bible and see maybe something else has made this doctrine a little clear. Because this is kind of unclear. Well, let's look at what the Bible says about it elsewhere. The Bible repeatedly tells us that God keeps those who are his own. Ready? John 6, 38 and 39, or no, just verse 39, I'm sorry. John 6, 39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose how much? Nothing, lose nothing of all that he has given me. That means followers, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 28 and 29. This is the good shepherd little spill that Jesus has given out. It says, I will give them, that's my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish. Don't miss the word never. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Don't miss no one, right? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. Romans 8, 38 and 39. 
4. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. That's his way of saying any and everything, the greatest, the least, anything, which is what he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That seems pretty clear, does it not? Romans eleven twenty nine. if it wasn't clear enough, it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Pretty straightforward. Philippians 1, 6. Maybe it's not straightforward enough. We'll keep going. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And just for good measure, one more. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, that God who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, I believe that when God promises to sustain, to preserve, to guard, and to keep us, that those promises are not subject to failure. In short, I simply think God's faithful. And I think he's got a pretty good track record on that one. God's made a promise, and he's made a lot of them. I just read several of them, and I really cut myself off. We could have kept going. But there's many places we see that God's made a promise. Those that are his, they're going to stay his. And no one's going to snatch them out of his hand. You may be thinking, well, what about people that make a profession of faith, but later they leave the church? The Bible talks about that too. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, they deserted the church, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, listen, they would have continued with us. But they went out, then it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you see how clear that is, right? Why did they leave? Why did they desert the church? Because they were imposters. There was nothing really there. God had never given real heart change. You may think, well, what about in Matthew 7 when Jesus said that people will prophesy in his name, cast out demons, and do miraculous work, but on the day Jesus will say, you may know this, depart from me, I never knew you. What about that case? Man, I love this part. Don't miss the word never. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. I once knew you, and, and you were with me, and then you fell away. No, it doesn't say that. I never knew you. And I think that means never. You're not mine and you never were mine. And so I just want to instill that number one can't be the case. Because the Bible is so clear many, many times over that those that belong to God will forever belong to God. Can we just praise God for that? We ain't losing it. We never earned it. Therefore, we can't lose it by our own work and effort, right? God is so good. He will preserve us. The Bible repeatedly tells us that God keeps those who are his own. So let's look at number two and number three then. Back to that slide. Number two and number three. Christians needing sort of this hypothetical situation that can't happen, but this kick in the pants. Or are we talking about almost Christians that have been around the covenant church community, but then they've fallen away never to return. Well, let's look at them, each one. And again, we're going to go through this quickly, but I don't want to rush it either, okay? So down in verse 4, it says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Well, stop, stop right there. Who have once been enlightened. So we're going to look at each one of these variables. There's four of them real quickly. What does it mean that once had, they had once been enlightened? Well, it means that they had heard the gospel and responded favorably to it. Now, listen, Christians and non-Christians can do that, can hear the gospel and respond favorably to it. Now, if it's number two, go put that back up there, please. If it's number two, that'd be Christians sort of 
that are hearing this, these ones that are enlightened, then someone that's defending number two would say that enlightened means saving faith. These are Christians. But if it's number three, they would say that it's a faux faith, a false faith that seems like faith, but it isn't. You so Jesus had many disciples, right? He had many disciples who heard his message, but later called him a blaspheming criminal or just deserted him. Judas was one of them, but he was just one of many, many deserters who, listen, responded favorably to the gospel at first. They responded favorably, and they walked away. John 6 is a great example of that. He had just fed 5,000 people. They were content to follow him, partake of his teaching, see his miracles. But when Jesus called them to come and believe at all costs, you know what it says? They left. They walked away. Doubtless, many who chanted an enlightened Hosanna on Palm Sunday to a, a week later would chant at him, a deserters crucify him. Can you respond favorably to the gospel and not be a Christian? Absolutely you can. We see examples of this, right? The second thing, and we're actually going to combine two and four here, I think. Tasted the heavenly goodness, or sorry, tasted the heavenly gift, tasted the goodness. It talks about witnessing these powers. Now, if someone is defending number two up there, then they would say that this means to take in an experience fully. He's talking about Christians. And so if they've taken in the heavenly gift, if they tasted the goodness of God, it means that they have fully internalized what it means to be a Christian. If they're defending number three, they would say to merely taste means to taste, not to consume, but to taste. Uh, there are examples of the, that word taste, that verb being used to put something to the tongue and then not take it in. Jesus did this when he was about to be crucified. He would taste and he did not intake the wine that was offered to him at that time. And so someone defending number three would say that these are people that were in close contact with the blessing of Christian community. Maybe they even took communion. You see what I'm saying? They tasted this heavenly gift. They've been in, in the circle of being blessed by being in the covenant community, the church of God's people. They maybe heard gospel sermons, edifying music, bowed in prayer, seen powerful displays of God, witnessed it, and never really partook of it. You see what I'm saying? In other words, there are people that have come to this church and have heard a sermon about the wonderful goodness of God. They may have seen a baptism. Maybe even they took the Lord's Supper with you. And they have deserted and walked away from God and they are not believers. Right? I'm simply saying this may be the case that we're talking about here. And then he goes on and says, having shared in the Holy Spirit. Now this is the tough one. Those defending number two would say that this terminology can be seen as the clearest possible statement of someone being a Christian. And it's hard to argue with that if I'm honest. That's what it says is shared, completely shared in the Holy Spirit. But those defending number three would say, or they're witnesses to the Spirit at work. They even experienced the draw of the Spirit. Maybe they even had hands laid on them, saw a powerful working of the Spirit of God. And to be honest with you, church, genuinely, I don't know if two or three is the right one. Just be real. I'm not going to sit here and say definitively, this is the right thing, because I don't know if it's a hypothetical warning and that those who persevere will always persevere. And he's simply saying, warning, stick with it, that no one would ever lose their salvation. Maybe it's that, or maybe it is the case of someone that has been around the covenant community. I, didn't, I genuinely don't know. But back to verse 4, real quick, and then we'll move on from this. When it says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, when it says in the case, it leads me to think that these are convincing counterfeits. Number three. Because what he's saying is he's addressing the church of the Hebrews, right? He's, he's, he's advancing and looking to believers. And then he says a different case, right? A case. 
And that leads me to think that he's not at this point engaging believers, but looking at non-believers, convincing counterfeits. But listen, all that being said, I know that might bog you down and be confusing. Please don't get lost in the sauce here, okay? Listen, regardless whether it is number two or number three, I don't want to misspeak here. The author's aim in saying these things is the exact same. Because his aim is a sincere and urgent warning, lest the world's lure be luring us to join its rejection of Christ. Whether it's number two or number three is really irrelevant at the end of the day, because the warning is simple. Don't be lured away. Persevere. Stick in with it. Stay with Christ. Guys, the emphasis is not so much on the modifiers that we see in the middle of those four things, But the words, for it is impossible, and then verse 6, and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And don't miss this, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In other words, we kind of focus on the whole enlightened thing, Holy Spirit thing, tasting the goodness thing. But the big hammer is not those things. The hammer is they are crucifying Jesus again. That's offensive. The other stuff shouldn't be what gets highlighted. The stuff that should be highlighted is he's saying people that walk away are crucifying Jesus again. That's a big statement, man. Why is it vital to pursue maturity? He says, for it is impossible to come back. That's why. Because it's impossible to come back, at least observably from the author who has seen people probably recant, meaning simply to turn away from, to recant and go back on their initial confession. Now listen, this is where I think this is, this is really fascinating. And I know that we're really bogging down with information. Just stick with me, okay? The author, I think, when he says this, impossible to come back, I think, again, he's not speaking to 21st century Americans. He's speaking to first century Jewish believers. And I believe that he's contextualizing. I think he's contextualizing, meaning first we have to read it for them before we read it for us. Listen, in their time, this is so interesting. In their time, there were Jews who would be willing to convert to Christianity as long as there was no pressure from their peers, no pressure from their family, and so forth and so on. Good counterfeits, right? Who perhaps joined a church community, were baptized, took the Lord's Supper, and fooled everyone, and when really tested, had not really had a heart change. That happens today, right? We can identify with that. But listen, we're talking about a culture that to this day, listen, often disowns family members for abandoning their religious heritage. They strip birthrights, people who beat their own, who disown their own, who excommunicates family and tells them they can come back when they come back to their God. Different culture, right? A little bit different. I once spoke with a Middle Eastern convert. This is a true story. This is just a few years ago. I once spoke to a Middle Eastern convert that said upon his telling his family about his conversion to Christ, he was burned with a fire poker by his father and he was beaten by his siblings and told to get lost. That actually happened. It's a different world over there, man. It is a different world. And so the author, I think, is contextualizing an argument here. He knows his audience. And so what he's saying is, warning If you turn away, I think he's saying in our culture, their culture, you're not coming back. He uses the word impossible. And maybe he's talking about that from human terms or complete, like, definitive terms. I don't know. But he's very intensely saying, you're not coming back. He says, since, in verse 6, since you are crucifying once again the Son of God to your own harm and holding him up to contempt. Jews in this culture that recanted, 
that did so in an extreme way. Listen to this. This is what pressure looked like then to recant. I heard one scholar say that in that day, a priest would slit the throat of an unclean pig. He would let the blood flow in the gutter outside of the temple in the street, and the professing Christians who recanted their prior conversion would spit in the blood of the pig and say that it had no more power to save than the blood of that accursed Jesus of Nazareth. Recanting was different, right? Different context. And so listen, I'm not trying to minimize a season of godlessness that you had when you were a teenager or as a young adult, but we're talking about another level of falling away here, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? We're talking about another level of leaving the path. One that the author of Hebrews feels comfortable saying is impossible to come back from since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That means what they're saying is if you walk away, and again, think about that analogy of the, the spitting in the blood thing. He has no, he's, a, he's a shameful man. If you walk away, what you're saying is, he deserved it. That liar, he deserved it. That blasphemer, he deserved it. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, there's no coming back from that. Now listen, it isn't that God would not and could not forgive them. Rather, if the readers fall away in the way that one in their context would, they would simply never again desire to return. Listen, they went from converting and undergoing great difficulty, being disowned, and who knows what else. Then they, they recant, and they're now welcomed and celebrated, embraced by their parents, embraced by their community, and they finally have peace back in their lives. Do you think they're going to go back to the hardship? Impossible. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Is it in our context, he's saying, if someone turns away, they're not coming back. They're not coming back. And so you may be listening to this sermon, and you may be looking at this passage, and you're feeling sort of retrospective, meaning you're looking back and looking inwardly, looking back. You may be thinking, impossible to come back. I had a season. You may say, is, is that me? Have I done that? Did I do that? Was I one of these cases Listen, looking back is not the aim of a warning. Let me say that one more time. Looking back at your life, anybody else's life, looking back is never the aim of a warning. If you were to head to Starkville from Meridian, right? You hop on Highway 45, right? If you were to hop on Highway 45 and start heading north to Starkville from Meridian, and I knew that there was a speed trap on Highway 45 in Macon. This is a real contextualized analogy, isn't it? And I knew there was a speed trap on Highway 45 in Macon. When would be the right time to give you that warning? When you're in Columbus? Why? Because you're beyond it, right? Why, was one, why would one give a warning? Because you're looking forward. It would be better for me to give it to you on this side of Macon, obviously, or even just before you even leave your house. Because there's nothing you can do with a warning looking back. Do you hear that? This isn't about retrospection. It's not about looking back at your life. That's not why he gives this to them. He gives this to them so that the author of Hebrews is saying, issuing a warning, not that they would look backward, but that they would be mindful as they look forward, right? Be mindful of the warning as you go forward in your life. Guys, the goal of the warning is not to make judgments. Well, was I? Were they? Is that who he's talking about? 
That's not at all why he gives this. He does not give this so that you can look at Joe Schmo over there and say, I don't know. Is that one of the impossible ones? He's not saying to you, well, that person over there, I think they haven't been to church in a long time. I wonder if it's impossible for them. That is none of your business. It is not for you to judge their eternal standing. Well, we can pray for them and pray that God would restore a heart. Man, pray fervently that God would restore all of our hearts, bring all of us near to him. We should do that, man. But this passage is not about judging your neighbor. It's just not. It's not about pointing the finger, and it's not about pointing the finger back at your past and saying, did I? Was I? Guys, looking back is never the aim of a warning. Only God knows those things. But God has given us this warning as a means, listen, of enabling us, his people, to look into tomorrow, not yesterday. God gave you this today so that you would look into tomorrow, not who you used to be. That you would endure, persevere in the days ahead. And don't get me wrong, man, this passage is tough, but the author follows it with a parable. It's in verses 7 and 8, and it's because it's he's self-aware. He knows that this is a hard thing to wrap your mind around, and so he says, I'm going to give you a parable to make it make maybe a little bit more sense. So look at verses 7 and 8. This is very simple, very clear. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who set, for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But... If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What you see here are two perspective types of land, and on the outside, they may bear a striking resemblance. They both look like dirt, but whether they are the real deal can be seen in time by their crop. It's reminiscent of the parable of the sower, and you may already be thinking about that. From Matthew chapter 13, we talk about the, the God is his sowing seed, and this, he's the same seed, the same sower. He's show, sowing, speed to all, sowing seed to all people. We know that this seed is the word of God, the gospel, and he mentions there are four soils. Are you familiar with this parable? He mentions there are four soils, and I'm going to explain it really elementary if, if you're not familiar. Basically, there's good soil, and there's three types of bad soil. There's four soils, one good and three bad. And what it comes down to is, is this soil, that of a heart that is receptive and will believe or one that is going to ultimately reject. He says the first soil is one that the seed fell on a path. It was hardly soil at all. And the birds devoured it. It represented a hard heart that it almost just, the good news hits and just bounces right off to be devoured by the birds. It has no root. The second soil is soil with simply no depth. And it has soil, but it's all topsoil, and there's, there's no depth to it. And so it represents a shallow heart, that it produces immediate signs of life. But because there's no root, the afternoon sun comes, and it scorches the plant, and it withers, and it dies. It's not sustainable, and it dies, ultimately. The third soil is one that grew among thorns. It represents the one who hears the word. This is a quote from that passage. But the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then there's the fourth soil, good soil, fruitful soil. The second and the third types of soil seem to be who the warning is for here in Hebrews. The second and third are the ones that this is for in Hebrews. They receive the word, but ultimately it produces thorns and thistles. Now listen, this passage, I can't emphasize this enough, this passage is not an accusation. Please hear that. This passage is not an accusation. It is a loving reminder of the seriousness of our situation. That it is vital 
that we daily renew our commitment to Christ. Last week, we talked about this warning of sluggishness, of laziness, of dullness. And this week, we talked about where it leads to. Drifting. Leaving. Never to return. This is serious business, church. This is serious. And the author is giving a sincere and stern Warning, but hear this, this is not an accusation. Warnings are a means of God's grace. We said that last week. Warnings are a means of God's grace, not his harshness, not his meanness. It's his grace. The goal is not then to say, oh no, which soil am I? It is to say, I must preserve and ensure that I'm good soil. It's not to say, oh no, which one am I? I'm afraid. What what if I'm impossible? Listen, the goal is that you would endure and persevere and ensure that you are a maturing, good soil. Not to say, well, I've fallen away before. Am I not allowed back? Am I the impossible case? Listen, if that's you and you're thinking that way, the very desire to repent and be restored, you being here is evidence that you have not fallen away in the irrevocable way described here. I'm trying to make it as clear and plain as I possibly can. Don't get lost in the confusion and the doctrinal mix-up that we go into. This is not a look into yesterday. It's a look into now, a look into tomorrow. The passage is simply not teaching that you can lose your salvation. It's teaching that people can have spiritual experiences, highs, and remain lost. They can go to summer camp and have an amazing experience and come back on fire for the Lord and then grow up around the thorns of the world and it's choked out. And it's gone because it was never a good soil in the first place. It's talking about people that can go to the revival and hear an amazing sermon from an amazing preacher and make an amazing decision. And they go back to work and it's shallow soil. And the afternoon sun hits it and it's gone. That's the warning. What soil are you going to be? What soil are you The warning is that it is possible to hear the word of God, profess to be a believer, fellowship in the church, and yet turn away. That there are very good counterfeits that under pressure and persecution, or just when, maybe more appropriately does, just when distracted by the allure of the world, many will go back to the world. The warning is to be certain that you're not one of them. Application time. If you have been drifting, just being real sincere here, if you do some reflection time, and if you feel like you have been drifting, and you're here today, and you sense a movement in your heart of conviction, a reminder to push forward, if you sense that, can I just say this? That's a great sign. It's a great sign that God is stirring your heart, that you're heeding that warning. If you maybe are here today, and you you don't feel a drift in your heart, because you feel near the Lord, but you're You hear a helpful reminder today to stay and persevere and to press on, to not get lazy and complacent. If that's you, it's a good sign. Because there's a fire within you saying, press on. It could happen to anybody. Press on. That's a good sign. But if you're here today, and if you're honest with yourself, you've been drifting and you have nothing to do with these things. And yet in your spirit, instead of feeling moved, You feel calloused. You feel dull. That's a red flag. That's when you need to heed the warning. Maybe your soil that has produced rapid growth once upon a time 
something happens on some Sunday, you had some experience, but that feeling was broken immediately, and that's all you've ever had. Or maybe you've seen some growth in your life, but the onslaught of the influence has dragged you away, and you've simply feel like you have left it behind. That your friend circle or social media or an addiction to pornography or drugs or some substance that has gotten you enslaved or perhaps it's a work environment that is destroying you or your speech, whatever it may be, it chokes it out. Listen, I'm not here to bring an accusation. I'm here to bring you a loving reminder of the seriousness of your situation and the vitality of daily renewing your commitment to Christ. I'm going to echo one more thing, and that is what this author is suggesting. There is no permanent state of spiritual infancy that you can occupy. If you are a baby Christian, beware the drift. Pursue maturity. This is not me being judgmental and bringing an accusation. It's me lovingly pushing you forward and saying you must press on and persevere. Whatever the case is for you today, you've got to wake up. And some of you need to wake up before it's too late. That's a heavy-handed word. And I don't want to end there because I want to remind you of something. Sometimes we can hear these things and feel so beaten and bruised and discouraged, as if to say, man, I stink at this. I'm horrible at this. I always feel myself backsliding. I hear a sermon, and this guy, he's up there. I'm echoing, aren't I? This guy's up there, and he's talking, and I just feel beaten this way and this way. Can I just give you a gospel reminder before you go? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, heavy burdened. He says, what I give you is light, and it's easy. He says, I'll give you rest. This thing that I'm suggesting, if you've been far off, I just want you to know that the gospel doesn't bid you come and be good. It bids you come and surrender and be saved. There's no one in this space that has it together, and we're very good at pretending. We're very good. Some of you guys are real good looking. Some of you, eh. The point is, we are so good at polishing ourselves. But in reality, we are not in a glassed-in enclosure of a museum, but we're in a hospital bed with an ailment called sin. And the only way that we have hope in this life is because we know the healer. And one day, we will be with him once again. Perseverance, very strict. We must be strict in our discipline to yearn after him. But at the end of the day, we trust not our perseverance, but we trust the Son of God who bled and died that he could save that which was lost. Praise God for that.